Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Anthony Bradley, Distinguished Research Fellow here at the Acton Institute, and Emily Zanotti, Contributing Editor here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the passing of Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor back at the beginning of December, and what we're hopeful for in 2024. But first, I wanted to go to a little college just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, that maybe some of you have heard of. Uh, If any of you have the qualifications to be the president of a university, they're looking for one. And the reason they're looking for one is Claudine Gay, who had been president of Harvard for, I believe, about nine months, uh, not a very long time, has resigned from that position. How did we get here? We got here with the hearings that happened in Congress back in the beginning of December that were looking at the problem of anti-Semitism on college campuses. There were three university presidents that testified in those congressional hearings. You had the president of MIT, which as of the moment, she still has a job. The president of the University of Pennsylvania, who resigned not too long after those congressional hearings, and the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay. Now, we talked about this on this program, and it was widely regarded that these three university presidents uh, did not acquit themselves very well in these congressional hearings when pressed on the issue of anti-Semitism on college campuses, including all of them being asked by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik if calls for genocide would be considering harassment and bullying on their campuses, and all of them giving some variation of the answer of, well, it depends on the context. Um, Which, you know, if you really want to get deep in the weeds on it, you could parse maybe a possibly defensible explanation for that answer. But, you know, sometimes just what you see and how it comes off is way more important than the actual words that are being spoken. And pretty much everyone agreed that none of these college presidents did very well in defending themselves. Now, while the University of Pennsylvania's president was pushed out largely for her performance— in this congressional hearing uh, at the, you know, I believe they also lost the chairman of the board at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was widely because of her performance in those hearings. Claudine Gay had so far resisted the efforts to oust her over that. Enter stage right, Christopher Rufo, the activist at the Manhattan Institute, who surfaced a whole lot of plagiarism in the comparatively light academic record of Claudine Gay. Uh, After handing a lot of that off also to the Washington Free Beacon and the reporter Aaron Sibarium, we have about roughly 50 incidences of plagiarism that Claudine Gay seems to have committed during her academic career. And again, I I would note, having now gotten to know a lot of people who are academics, um, the amount of publishing that she has done, she's not written any books. I think she's published something like 11 scholarly articles, a pretty light publishing record for an academic. And 
Eventually, she succumbed to the pressure for her to resign, announcing her resignation and then authoring an op-ed in The New York Times about essentially why she was pushed out. Um, I think there's a, this story is kind of a pinata in that we can hit it from almost any angle and it'll yield some reward. Uh, but there, there was there's been an interesting effort, and we've talked about this on this program before, to use some interesting language to try to avoid the actual substance of what went on here. Um, it hasn't been called plagiarism by everyone. It's been called duplicative language. Um, she talked about errors that she asked for corrections on. Uh, but it's pretty clearly plagiarism, and you can see also the the significance that this would have for a university like Harvard when you look at their student code and anybody engaging in anything similar to what Claudine Gay had done would almost certainly be expelled from the university. So, uh, Anthony, now making your maiden voyage on this August podcast, uh, glad to have you here. You've been in academia. Um, what did you make of this whole story, this situation, and by my lights, again, as a, you know, someone who graduated from undergrad now 20 years ago and wasn't a great student to start with, um, the the seriousness or lack of seriousness with which a whole lot of people seem to be regarding plagiarism right now. So it's, it's really interesting because when you look at this entire scenario, if we can go back to the congressional hearing, it was essentially a group conformity experiment. The reason they gave the same answers is that they had to. As soon as one of them went down the direction, and you can look at this in all of the group conformity research, you everyone had to give the same answer. And so they were kind of stuck there. And as you noted, that's when the dominoes began to, to fall. And that's a, that's a really important signal about these elite institutions is that they are sort of all for one and, and, and one for all. That set the stage for the raising of all these questions. And when I look at the situation with Professor Gay, it's really, uh, it really sort of makes me sad because Harvard, in one sense, was stuck. Uh, they had lauded this as such a great success in terms of the application of her own background in diversity, equity, and inclusion that they had to, in one sense, turn a blind eye to best practices and standards. One of the things that we see in higher education is that when college presidents are known to have plagiarized, they resign no matter what. We've seen this at Stanford, right? We've seen this at all these other schools. So it's sort of an industry standard in, in that sense. But Harvard was stuck because now they had someone who was the sort of crown, I guess, princess of, of diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And they, be, they got really creative with the language, right? Duplication, as you noted. And so they, they were really sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, and they chose the direction of turning a blind eye. What people don't understand about higher education is that plagiarism is the cardinal sin. It is, is the sin of all sins. You can be a student and be found guilty of sexual assault. You can be a student and sell drugs on campus. You will not get expelled for that. Most colleges have some sort of graduated sense of, of punishment for plagiarism. 
if you are caught the first instance, you get sort of a hand slap, you fail the assignment, then after that, you might fail the course. On the third infraction, you get you get expelled. And so it, it was impossible given the number of cases of the quote-unquote duplication for the college president to have a standard that the university doesn't hold, right? And so, so it, again, again, she had to resign because if you looked at this, the sheer number of instances of this duplication, freshmen at that college were failing courses and failing assignments, having done the exact same thing. And it was inevitable, unfortunately. And the framing, to me, what was so interesting is, is the, 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 the framing of this is sort of racially motivated, to me, was just somewhat ridiculous because the number of instances that, that we found, uh, any other president, white, black, female, whatever, would also have to have to resign. And I, I was really saddened by the, the entire episode. And when you had students at Harvard beginning to complain and highlight the fact that, well, how could the president get away with having these instances when we as students are held to a much, much higher standard? And so I, I, I'm, again, really sad that it, it, it came to that. But I, I think this was less about the her, her, her race uh, and, and, and more about the fact that they absolutely had to do it given the number of presidents that have resigned in the past. There was somebody who I saw tweet that like, oh, I guess we're going to have to go look at everybody in academia now to see uh, how much they've plagiarized. And like, yeah, like I, I don't. Your terms like, are acceptable. Your, your terms are entirely <laughs> acceptable to me. I don't. And th- there's an element to this as well that um you know, obviously, people have been found out for plagiarizing for forever, for as long as people have been committing plagiarism. One of the things that has really changed, though, is the advances in technology, that there are now these uh, systems that you can feed people's copy into that will match it up against, you know, not just Wikipedia or other online sources like that, but other academic texts. And it just makes it a lot easier to scout this kind of thing out. And you you perhaps disagree? No, I mean it's 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 much easier, but there's a there's a prior problem. And the the prior problem is that in a lot of elite institutions, there's actually less quality control. What happens at a lot of elite institutions, the assumption is that you're worthy of the the, the degree because you got in. So there's actually less scrutiny in many cases at, at, at elite institutions. It's probably to be interesting to, to, to do a study. But my guess is there's less plagiarism at, at less elite institutions. Because if you are getting a Ph.D. at Waka Waka State, you're, you're scared to death uh, that you might be found out that someone along the line might sabotage your exit out of that institution to try to find something great. If you're at an elite institution, what often happens is, oh, they're one of us, they're probably good. And so it's, it's easier to get away with it because, you, because the assumption is that because the person is here, uh, they are worthy of this degree. They're, they're worthy of this of this status. And so what happens is everybody gets sloppy. Everybody gets sloppy. 
writers get sloppy, committee members on a dissertation committee get sloppy. And I've, I've served on dissertation committees, and I, I can tell you what often happens is you skim it, right? And you're skimming along, and, and you don't know all the work that's out there to even know that it's, it's plagiarism. And because you just want to get the thing done, to me, it's probably just a lot of laziness on everybody's part. I don't, I'm not, you know, if you were to ask me, uh, was, was Dr. Gay, you know, sort of intentionally being duplicitous? No. If you were to ask me, was she being lazy? Probably. Was her committee being lazy? Most likely. Because that's just what happens when you get to that level. You finish your, your coursework, you finish your comps, you got to get this thing done. You just want to get it done. And... And that was before Turnitin. Uh, and so when you run it through Turnitin, all these red flags come up. And I can tell you right now, there's a lot of scholars out there who are nervous. Because if this is, if this is where we're headed, right? I mean, I was almost, I almost thought, oh, my gosh, wait, that first book I wrote. I mean, did I make sure? <laughs> let me go back and check and make sure I actually cited. That's the deep irony of the journalists reporting on this. So you see a lot of AP CNN, all of these places trying to redefine the word plagiarism. But in my line of work, plagiarism is a fireable offense. You will lose your job. And now, um, you know, academia may be behind journalism, but now there are, um, like, in your, in your Chrome, there is an attachment, if you're an editor, that lets you actually read through and it'll catch grammatical mistakes, but it will also catch, and I know it's in Word now as well, they'll also catch AI and it will catch previously published material. So while academia maybe be a little behind on this, there's a lot of journalists who might also fall prey to the standard because, you know, five, six years ago, we weren't scanning everything for AI and for previously published material, but now we are. And so you see AP kind of whitewashing all of this. And then I looked in their handbook and yeah, it's a fireable offense at the Associated Press if you use somebody else's material. This is something that has particularly driven me crazy. And I'm not, I know I'm not the first person to make this observation, but within the journalistic world, there are a lot of topics where you need to go find some kind of a subject matter expert in order to get a really good understanding of what's going on. It's like plate tectonics or, you know, all kinds of different topics. If you're a journalist, you can't speak with all that much authority on a lot of those topics, so you need to go find people who are experts on it. One of the things that I think, like, you know, the Associated Press, the New York Times, does have some authority to speak on is plagiarism for exactly the point that Emily just made. Because it is such a serious offense within the operation of that profession alone, let alone within the academia context in which we've been discussing this. Yeah, I think one, one, one difference is sort of culturally in, in the academy, the idea that you would plagiarize would be seen not only as, as immoral, but classless. I think there was a sense historically where people were like, well, of course he wouldn't plagiarize. He, he's, he has the ethics, right? There's no way. He's just the kind of person or she's the kind of person who would never do that. In the past, there was this sort of arrogance, Right. This sort of pride that, well, of course, I wouldn't plagiarize because I'm actually a better scholar than the people in the past. Right. And and there's been a moral shift, I think, in higher education 
where where people have become pragmatists, right? So one of the things that that I heard, and and anyone who's done graduate education knows this, the saying is a is a good dissertation is a finished one, right? That's a good dissertation is getting the thing done, and if if it's really about the utility of getting it done, by any means necessary. Right. The ends justify the means. So if the point is to get the dissertation done and if you ha- if you copy and paste a couple of things without without giving those sorts of attributions, then so be it. And the, uh, another thing that's that's changed is that in, in a lot of higher education contexts, particularly at the Ph.D. dissertation level, there's interesting discussions about the amount of citing that, that you do, like too much citing or not enough. And there's a pressure, there's, there actually is pressure in, in one sense that it, it doesn't appear that you're making as much of a contribution if you are citing everybody in the world, right? So if you have 20 footnotes for a paragraph, people are like, ah, then maybe that person's not nearly as gifted because they're not really making their own contribution. So there's there's some there is some some pressure there to to, to reduce those number of of citations. And one way to to give the appearance that you're you yourself are coming up with these really brilliant ideas. And and for me, sometimes I said I'm actually too arrogant. I mean I'm like too prideful to plagiarize because I think, you know, I'm actually smarter than the other people. And and why would I plagiarize somebody else's thought? Because if they were as brilliant as they as they could claim to be, they wouldn't be cited here. I wouldn't use them as a source. I would I would you know simply may, maybe argue against them, but I don't really need them to bolster to bolster my my argument. So I, I think in part that pragmatism, the utilitarianism of just getting it done, has actually reduced these standards, and and the the, the moral and ethical framework in higher education is also in decline. You just don't get the sorts of scholars that you do that you did in the past, right? And and we're beginning to see this more and more and more that people just don't value things like truth and honesty and in citations. They just wanna they just wanna get it done. I, I do want to come back to the state of the academy in, in general, but there's another element to this that uh Emily, I want to ask you about the political valence on all of this. So Obviously, if it had been discovered for whatever reason that the president of Harvard, just as uh, as Anthony had alluded to, the president of Stanford previously had engaged in this level of plagiarism, you're you're probably going to have that person pushed out. But a lot of people were trying to make hay over the question of like, this isn't really about the plagiarism of Claudine Gay. It's about, first and foremost, her performance at that congressional hearing, because is Christopher Rufo, is Aaron Sibarium at the Washington Free Beacon? Um, the New York Post apparently had been on to this months ago, and uh, Harvard had sicked their lawyers on the New York Post to try to get them to back off of it. Um, and, and apparently successfully enough because the story hadn't come to the fore yet. But the reason we're talking about the plagiarism of Claudine Gay isn't because we have decided to take this very serious look at the academic record of the president of Harvard. 
we only started taking a look at that, or certain people did, because of her performance in these congressional hearings, which gets to this argument, um, or at least attempt, as I see it, to say that there's, you know, nothing to see here, nothing really important, because the people who are coming after her are bad people with bad motives. And I just don't find this compelling in the slightest. Jonah Goldberg at the dispatch made this point about I think and actually I think is a very good comparable example here. Deep throat, right? Woodward and Bernstein have this source. Um, and for years, the perception was like this was somebody on the inside, of the FBI, who like really knew what was going on and was outraged about Nixon's abuses of power and all the things that he was doing. And he just wanted the truth to get out. And lo and behold, years later, decades later, we find out the deep throat is this guy, Mark Felt, who was passed over for a promotion, kind of a cranky right wing guy. Uh, and was ratting out his colleagues more or less to get revenge. It really didn't have much to do about Nixon's crimes in and of themselves. But my point would be it's kind of irrelevant. Frequently sources, frequently people engaged in this, uh, in this kind of – you can call it activism. I think that's perfectly fine and acceptable – do have – their own motives. That doesn't mean that Woodward and Bernstein's reporting on what happened at Watergate was somehow irrelevant because Mark Felt's uh, intentions, his reasons for doing this, were less than completely noble and civically minded. What matters is what the truth is, and the truth in this particular case was that Claudine Gay was a plagiarist. Even if Chris Rufo, whatever you think of him, uh, has his own agenda, he absolutely does. And he's pretty open and transparent about that agenda. But it doesn't change the underlying nature of the offense. Well, what's really interesting, too, is you don't think of Harvard as responding to a bunch of conservative cranks. Harvard doesn't care what Chris Rufo thinks. Harvard is still going to get people signing up to going. Uh, they're still going to have people backing their president uh, and up until Christmas break, according to the New York Times, there was no intention of having Claudine Gay resign. Um, in fact, most likely what would have happened was we would have gone six or eight months or a year, and then she would have stepped down in favor of going to some other university or she's taking time for her family or something like that. There would have been an excuse. And by then you would have forgotten completely about the fact that she probably plagiarized uh, elements of like half of her academic work. Um, what really happened was everyone went home for Christmas break and the teachers at Harvard and the students at Harvard and the people who give money to Harvard started saying, this is bad. Like, this is bad. And you should have gone for the anti-Israel protests. You should have gone for the congressional thing. But now we have all of this evidence. Harvard's now done its own investigation that says you you plagiarized we're going to stop giving money if you do not change this. And that's ultimately what motivated Harvard to change. It wasn't Chris Rufo, although Chris Rufo did great work here. Um, it wasn't the conservatives. It wasn't anybody who was motivated by an attack on left-wing academia. That would be lovely if that were the case from my perspective. If you really were going after people who were shutting down academic freedom, because she has a record of doing that. Um, but what really happened was the donors at 
Christmas and, and the holiday break said, this is bad. And when you get back, you will resign. Um, because we cannot have the next wave of students coming into Harvard because now it's application time. We can't have the next wave of students coming into Harvard knowing that this is what's going to happen because their parents will not pay the bills. So I, I think it's kind of an odd thing because they're blaming all of this on, on conservatives, but really, I mean, it was money men and the New York times that drove her out. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. What a lot of people may not remember is the number of donors at the University of Pennsylvania that pulled out immediately following those hearings. That was the domino effect that ultimately led to the resignation is the the foundations, right? The those those supporters were saying, "I'm out." And I think and that's that's exactly that's exactly right. I think Harvard as an institution they could have waited this out, right? They could have just this press on, but the the sort of twin uh, movements of both it being the time of year where donors are pulling out wallets is is suddenly sort of students coming is is really important. There were there were applications. I mean, I I heard good reporting that prospective students were beginning to question if they should even go to Harvard. That was trending. Right. They were wondering, I don't know if this is as prestigious of a school as as I thought. Parents were also beginning to ask questions about about those things. And yes, did Christopher Rufo put these things on the table? Absolutely. But a lot of investigative reporting does that, right? This wasn't simply reporting. He is an investigative reporter, and they tend to be right pariahs. I mean, or, or great right shark. If there's blood in the water, they're just go. They're going to go after it no matter what, right? And, and that's that's a that's a really 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 important point to to remember that ultimately ultimately it's about the money. Well, Emily, this is something that you know too from previous campaign, political campaign experience, right? So much of what masquerades in journalism as investigative reporting is really stuff that has been handed off from sources, usually in political campaigns, who have done the oppo research, who have all of it. Um, it's never credited to those people. It's you know credited to you know sources or research or independent or whatever. Um, but they're uh, these are people who are again have their own individual motives. It doesn't invalidate the underlying facts and the underlying reality of all of that. The point about the money that I find interesting in all of this is if you're Harvard, right, if you're that concerned, um, it just it, – it is heartening in a way, right, that – these, this is a university, Harvard. The endowment at Harvard is about $50 billion. I mean, they can sustain themselves for a long period of time on that amount of money. And yet they are still sensitive to the people who would be willing to pull their money away from the university in response to, um, again, the all the downstream effects of this, that what started with these congressional hearings and, and the congressional hearing being precipitated by the climate on campus, uh, the anti-Semitism. And problems that existed there, and then flowing downstream to this discovery of Claudine De Gay's um, lack of a stellar academic record causes people to pull money away. Even uh, an, an, a university with a $50 billion endowment is sensitive to that. And it's one of the things that gives me hope. It also for makes sense when you think back to October when Students for Justice in Palestine, Palestine um, were losing jobs. 
So these were Harvard law grad or Harvard third years, um, Harvard seniors who were getting hired based on the merits of being Harvard. And then all of a sudden, these white shoe law firms and white shoe eye banking firms were finding out that they were the heads of these organizations and their clients were complaining. So now you have another uh, another area or another tangent to it all because the, the jobs are disappearing. Harvard students aren't going to get the jobs just by the sheer merit of being from Harvard. They are going to have to prove themselves in different ways now. So they're going to be up against Princeton. They're going to be up against Cornell. They're going to be up against other schools where it's, it's taken more seriously. Um, so you have the donors, you have the academics, you have the students, and then you also have the employers. Um, and the employers are not happy about this either. Right. And so what was happening is that the brand, the brand of Harvard was losing credibility to protect the, the board's job is to protect the brand. And the dominoes were just stacking up. Right. Month after month after month. And they had to protect the brand. Imagine Harvard boasting themselves as one of the most premier academic institutions on the planet Earth. And they're looking over the pond, right? You have Cambridge looking at them, Oxford looking at them. And they have a series of problems, right? As Emily said, students aren't getting hired anymore. There's a plagiarism accusation. They aren't handling these things very well. So how can you claim to be in the same class as Oxford and Cambridge? We have these sorts of, 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 of issues that are, that are alive and well on the campus. So the brand was having a, a major, major problem. And so they had to do a correction, protect the brand, because the brand is what draws in the donors that provide Harvard with cash. The endowment doesn't really garner that much cash. They can draw maybe 3 to 5% of that endowment, but they need some cash to sort of fund all the things that Harvard funds, and that was in jeopardy. Did race matter in this story at all? So one of my weekly podcast listens is uh, Christianity Today puts out a, a really good podcast called The Bulletin. That Mike Cosper, who we've had on Acton Podcast before, spoke at Acton University a couple years ago, hosts. And one of his colleagues on there, Nicole Martin, uh, was making the point that, you know, while, while not disputing any, again, of the underlying facts in all of this, that the what we've learned about Claudine Gay's academic record does seem to be true, that she plagiarized pretty frequently and has a pretty thin academic record. But Nicole's point was that, you know, if you are Claudine Gay and you are a black woman, you're the first black woman president of Harvard University in the history of this, you know, one of the most famous universities in the country, in the world that's been around for hundreds of years. And you have to be extra perfect. You know, you just you you can't you have to be better than better um, in order to not have people come after you. Um, there certainly have been the attribution of race-based motives to some of the actors. We talked about Chris Rufo. Again, I think, you know, his it, it's a different thing to say that he, he's going after DEI. 
um, which is a different thing to say than he has race-based motives for going after Claudine Gay. Um, but this is certainly, in, a, in addition to the kind of, you know, can we use language? Can we change the words? So like plagiarism isn't plagiarism anymore. That was one of the attempts to try to defend her. One of the other attempts, and she brings this up in her New York Times op-ed piece, which we'll put in the show notes for people to read, is that, you know, they're, they're coming after me because I'm the first black woman president of, of Harvard and you still have this institutionalized racism within uh, not only academia, but within all these systems in America, and that that played at least some role in what is happening here. Yes, I think race played a role, and it's because Harvard made it about race in the first place. So race played a role insofar as as Harvard made Claudine's uh, acquisition about race, as opposed to making it about the merits of her capacity to run and manage and be an executive at an institution. I'll give you a great example by comparison. The president of LSU, Louisiana State University, is African-American. Most people probably have no idea. Why is that? Because LSU never publicly went all over the Internet and in the university saying, hey, hey, now we have uh, the first black president. In fact, I believe he's the only black president in the SEC. Right. So here you have this 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 man who's, who's who is black male president, but it wasn't about race. He became president and it was publicly introduced this way because of his experience at running institutions in, in higher education. Professor Gay's candidacy, because her background was in DEI and because so much of her own public rhetoric was in DI, it, it became about, about race. So because Harvard made it about race, unfortunately, the assumption now is that she's being challenged because of race. But the only reason we're even talking about race is because Harvard made it about race, right? Christopher Rufo didn't make it about race. The critics didn't make it about race. The, the, Harvard made it about race. So, so if we're talking about any sort of racial motive, it's not, it's not the critics that are to be blamed for that. It's Harvard itself. There are other, high, other institutions of higher education of the same size in this country led by minorities, and people don't even know that because, they, because those candidates were not talked about in terms of their race. There, there's a bit of a... I don't know, it's like Schrodinger's DEI problem here, where on one hand... Exactly what you're talking about, Anthony. In the elevation of Claudine Gay at Harvard, they're talking about you know, the elevation of the first black woman president of Harvard University. And they're talking about the importance of DEI and diversity, equity and inclusion and that you know, the importance of elevating people of color into positions like this. And then if anyone turns around and says that this is any kind of a diversity hire, you can't say that. Like, we, you can't have it both ways. Either we should be making an effort in accordance with the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion to elevate more people of color, more minorities into positions like this. And it can, has to be perfectly acceptable then to say, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing to say, like, you know, it's, it's a, a good thing to elevate more people from minority backgrounds into into high positions, especially if you believe that that's an important thing to do. 
But if people turn around then and, and call it, even in a non-pejorative way, a diversity hire, you can't get outraged about it. You got You have to pick a lane. It's got to be one of the two um, if, if, you, if we're going to engage in this, which, you know, again, to your point, probably a whole lot better to, you know, evaluate these people on the merit that they have to lead these institutions rather than making about these checklists of immutable characteristics that a whole lot of people would be able to check those boxes but wouldn't in any meaningful way be qualified to lead one of the most elite academic institutions in the entire world. Absolutely. And and if you were to ask why, why is it that someone in her position has to have, you know, as, as a, the other podcast mentioned, she has to have this double consciousness about being, being overly perfect, right? Sort of meeting above the normal standards. Well, that's because they made it about race. So if you're going to make the if you're going to make the candidacy about race and celebrate race, then the, then the person better be perfect, right? If, if you're going to make it about that, then then you should expect extra scrutiny in terms of whether or not the person is qualified to be hired if you're going to make it about race. When universities do not make their hirings in, in these executive positions about race or gender, those candidates don't get they get the normal scrutiny. But if they make it about something related to DEI or, 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 or something related to their minority status, it actually brings the ire, it sort of brings a criticism along with it. Final question on this topic, Emily. How much does this matter? Because, yes, like we 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 have a culture that has been you know, the 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 alignment towards the idea of college being incredibly important. Like I remember there being, you know, uh, college day at my kids grade school, like even when one of them was in kindergarten where they wear like the sweatshirt of whatever college that they went to. And we've been over aligned to this idea of, you know, you go to grade school, you go to high school and then you go to college and college is so important. And we have this incredibly high level of prestige placed upon the Ivy League academic institutions of which Harvard is probably the first and foremost most. But is is this really just a story about a bunch of elites and a bunch of academics? And, you know, you, if you followed the, the discourse in the last couple of days where people were uh, trying to give Chris Rufo a hard time for having gotten some kind of a degree from the Harvard University Extension School, um, and then a whole bunch of people who went to Harvard being like, well, that's not really Harvard. And you know, it's like I, I can hear the monocle and the ascot in everything that they are saying that, you know, it's like, well, this isn't, this isn't really Harvard. With it's this inadvertently kind of, revealing that their own institution was scamming people, if that's the case. If, it, if yeah. that degree is not as good as the Harvard education. Why is Harvard putting scam. its name on it? Right. Why is but, Harvard putting its name on it? So like, should <laughs> how how much? should the average person care about this story? Is this just another story where we're overvaluing the experiences of elites and particularly a certain brand of elite that went to a very elite university like this? Or does it have implications for the broader culture throughout the country? I think academia is in a really weird place right now. Like in a, a lot of things that happened after October 7th, the attack on Israel, by Hamas, um, a lot of people who might have been aligned, a lot of social justice groups that might have been aligned have started to fracture. 
And a lot of that is, you know, people are putting, they're, they're attacking colonialism, they're attacking this, and, and their allies are now saying, we, we've fought with you, and now you're telling us that we're the white oppressors. I don't really understand how that works. Um, I think a lot of things are fracturing for people following October 7th. And I think one of those places is academia, because where people might have sent their children to institutions of higher learning because of the jobs that they offered, um, those elite institutions aren't looking so elite right now. Um, they're not looking that uh, Harvard education isn't looking advantageous when it compares to a University of Michigan or an SEC or any of these other schools. You see a lot of parents, you know, I have three little kids and we're saving for college. And you're looking and saying, I think you guys should probably stay in the SEC at this point because going north of the Mason-Dixon line, we're going to have trouble to any of these Ivy League institutions. You're not going to do much better. You're not going to get the kind of academics that we thought you were. You're not going to get the kind of jobs that we thought you were. Um, it's it's devaluing the brand, as we already talked about. Um, I don't know if it's going to have an impact on the idea of having to go to school, go to college, because I think you still should if you can and if you want to. I think there's a, a lot of importance in higher education. Um, and I think a lot of these have acquitted themselves. A lot of these organizations have acquitted themselves by how they've handled um, the protests on campus. And they've they haven't tolerated as much as Harvard has. Um, and there's also a technology factor to all of this. The Harvard Extension School came into this accidentally because of Chris Rufo, but there is an explosion of online education now. I could, you know, I'm looking at getting a master's and I did a study just to try to find programs and they were all big 10 schools, SEC schools, and they're all online. They want to get as many people in their doors as possible, as much money in their pockets as possible. And one of the ways to do that is this online education, because as we learned in COVID, you don't need to be present for some of these classes. Um, and so I think I think there's a sort of a perfect storm brewing right now of technology and parents realizing maybe their kids shouldn't go to an elite institution as much as they should go to the University of Iowa to get the right degree or two years of community college or you know, learn how to live in the world rather than think that the Ivy is the only way that you're ever going to succeed in life. Anthony, real quick before we move on, you, you've spent a lot of time in academia. What what in, um, you know, in, a, in a minute or two here, give us, you know, how... How good is the state of academia in the United States right now? Well, it's it's a bit of a mess for lots of reasons. I think one, one of the things that high school students are thinking about is, is why am I going to really work myself to death in, in high school to, you know, to sort of position myself to enter a school and I have to deal with all this mess? And that's the calculation, right? Because the pressure for high school students is – to be as perfect as possible, right? Play 12 sports, speak seven languages, start a nonprofit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can get into these, these elite schools. And for what? You get there and you have to deal with a lot of DI stuff. You have to deal with the tribalism of, of political ideology. All the professors are on the left. Well, then if, if that's what I have to deal with, well, I might as well be in the honors college at the University of South Carolina, right? I might as well go to the 
the, the school in my state that's going to give me a massive scholarship. I'm only two hours away from home. I can still go back and see my boyfriend, et cetera. Those are the sorts of calculations. So it, it is a perfect storm. And the, the other problem is that the cost of education is so high. Parents are saying, listen, we have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars over this child's life, and now we have one chance to spend it. Am I going to spend all of this 529 money, whatever, on this institution? No, we're just not going to do it. I mean, we've, we've invested way, way too much. So there's all sorts of pressures, I think, that, that college are really facing now that introduce some, some new challenges. Let's move to our second topic now, which we'll touch on just briefly before going to our final topic of the program today, and that was in early December, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court, passed away at the age of 93. Uh, she was appointed to that court in 1981 by Ronald Reagan and served until her retirement in 2006. She'd stepped away from public life in uh, roughly around 2018 when she was diagnosed with the early stages of dementia. Um, in addition to being, or I guess besides being the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, I think one of the reasons that we there wasn't a whole lot of, again, holiday season intervening and all of that, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation about O'Connor is that she doesn't generate a whole lot of controversy um, in that she was a relatively centrist vote on the court while she was on it. And um, this is where I'll turn it to you, Emily, uh, someone with actual experience as a lawyer and who knows a lot more about these things than I do. Um, she, there really isn't an opinion of the court that she wrote that um, really kind of sticks with her in the way that you can identify, you know, certain individuals who've served on the court with a very specific opinion that they're very, very famous for having authored. Um, she's again, uh, primarily well known for breaking the, the glass ceiling on the court and of being somewhat of a swing vote for the years that she was on there. And again, doing something that, um, you know, too few people do these days, which is stepping away at a time that was, was good for her and good for people aligned with the way that she saw the role of the judiciary. Um, and as a result is, you know, despite being a, a, by all lights, an incredibly impressive person, um, is, is just kind of, uh, a little bit of an afterthought, unfortunately. Yeah. So what's really interesting about Sandra Day O'Connor is not that we have a specific decision that's tied to Sandra Day O'Connor, but we live in Sandra Day O'Connor's America. And the reason that we live in Sandra Day O'Connor's America is because she's a famous swing vote. Anthony Kennedy is also another example. Um, ultimately, while they may have not authored many memorable decisions, while they may not have contributed um, always, it they cast the votes that changed how we view the Establishment Clause, how we view critical issues like abortion, how we view you know religious freedom in this country, and so. For Sandra Day O'Connor to come on the court at that, that time and then ultimately leave the court just, you know, on her own volition to take care of her husband as he struggled with Alzheimer's living in um, Arizona. I, it's it's really interesting because she made all of this headway. And then quite frankly, even as an attorney, I kind of forgot she hadn't passed. Um, it's It's hard to recall that somebody had been on the court 
until they retired rather than um, keeled over. So it's 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 strange that she sort of faded into obscurity a little bit, but we really truly do, at least now, until we have this now new majority on the court of conservative, conservative or originalist justices for maybe most of my life, beginning in, you know, when, when she was on the court, um, we live in her America. So it's, it's very, she, she's a turning point in American cultural life and American constitutional life. And, and uh, that is an incredible contribution when you think about it. Very well said. And, and one anecdote uh, that I, I will share, because I just learned this the other day before we move to our final topic. Um, there are nine justices on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, and of course, the, the path that you have to take, you know, but talking again about elite institutions, right? You know, if you want to, I, you know, going through, I guess, would have been a quarter life crisis at the time, thought about like, you know, I thought for years, you know, back in college, should I go to law school? And, you know, thought about reconsider the idea of maybe going to law school a little later in my, my life and career. And I got very good advice of the like, you know, if you, it, once you pass the bar, it doesn't really matter all that much where you went to law school. The only place where it really matters is if you ever want to be a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States, you really need to have gone to Harvard or Yale and now maybe Columbia. And thanks to Amy Coney Barrett, maybe Notre and now Dame, Notre Dame. Um, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And I, and I celebrate that fact. But again, so like these paths are a little bit narrowed. But I did not realize that Sandra Day O'Connor served on the court with an ex-boyfriend who had proposed to her and who she had turned down in William Rehnquist. Which is just an absolutely wild story. And as somebody put it, it's like, you know, the if you know, if you have a rival or something in high school, it's like you, know, you just don't like that person. It's like, well, I'll never have to see them again. And lo and behold, you end up serving in the highest court in the land with somebody who once proposed. Now, I, by, by all accounts, they got along perfectly well. But I mean, still just a little bit awkward and just an incredible like anecdote of history um, that 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 actually transpired in that way. Let's move to our final topic, uh, which is it's a new year. And, you know, we've or as somebody uh, tweeted the other day, we've now entered, I believe, the eighth year of uh, 2016. Um, but from a political perspective, it certainly does feel like that. Or even at least it's the fourth year of 2020, uh, which, you know, when, when COVID caused everything to stop. But I, I want to know what you're hopeful for in this new year. What as you think about the possibilities that, you know, turning the page on the calendar or and for most people hanging up the new calendar to start in January 2024 means um, the, the possibilities that this year could hold anything, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, because, boy, it could hold anything. Uh, what, Anthony, are you hopeful for in 2024? This might sound strange, but there's so much disruption right now. I'm actually hopeful that that disruption is going to create new opportunities for some soundness. People are rethinking everything right now, and it's 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 a bit of a it's it's chaotic, right? But I think some things are are finally sunsetting. I think the DEI stuff is is sunsetting. Uh, more and more schools across the country are, are rolling some of those things back as being rolled back in many cases in, in, in corporate America. 
Uh, people are rethinking and reimagining higher education, and and I'm looking forward to what's going to happen on the tail end of, of some of these reconstructions of how we value these institutions and, and the ways in which we think about it. There's a lot of disruption right now in terms of, of dating and marriage. People are rethinking those things. And what's interesting is that what we would consider potentially some conservative values, people are beginning to see, I'm seeing this more and more, that you know what? That's a good idea. I mean, maybe maybe being married is a really good idea. I mean, maybe sort of thinking about peeling back some of the tentacles of, of of government is a is a really good idea. Maybe economic empowerment for people on the margins is a really really good idea. So I'm I'm looking forward to to what's going to happen on the other side of of these disruptions. I think people are asking really finally asking some really big questions. The previous era where people were asking really big questions is called the age of anxiety. It was between 1946 and 1964. And I think we're in another age of anxiety where people are asking the really big questions. What is the purpose of X, Y, and Z? And I'm really looking forward to those discussions moving forward. Emily, what are you hopeful for in 2024? I just want to get to the other side of this presidential election. <laughs> At least it has an end date, like right? Every year, I feel like every year since 2020 ended, I'm just like, I don't, I just want to get to the other side of whatever it is that's going on. And every time we get to the other side of whatever is going on, it's something new. So I'm going to try to not make any predictions about what I want to happen. But um, I, I, I just want to get to the other side of this presidential election. And I would like my daughter to move on from the frozen era because uh, I've seen this movie now enough times. Uh, yes. Well, I've, That's I'm, it. That's it. I've got nothing. I'm, I'm, to <laughs> I'm told if you wanted to move on from the frozen era, it helps just to tell her to let it go. Uh, but the, I, I'm ashamed of myself for making that joke. I just want everybody to know. Um, but having yeah. lived through it myself, uh, having lived through it myself, <laughs> I, I completely understand. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny, like my my fear in 2024 and my hope for 2024 have been well expressed, I think, by by both of you. And that my my fear is that the way that this upcoming presidential election is just going to cause the, a lot of people's brains to break in the inability to process it. And, you know, not without cause. I mean, it, be, beyond what you think of the two um, specific individuals, just the simple reality that we it looks like we're about to repeat a previous election with two people who are so widely unpopular that nobody like this is so many voters are saying like we do not want this election again and both political parties seemed absolutely determined to once again giving people the same two options that they thought were terrible the last time around um is is a little bit depressing i i think our politics is is definitely a broken scene but it was similar to anthony what you were saying what one of the things i'm hopeful for is that i think in keeping with my joke of, you know, this being the eighth year of 2016 or the fourth year of 2020, depending on how you want to look at it, that a lot some of these fevers are starting to break, that uh, some of the things that we have been really obsessed with and really hung up on for the last four to eight years um, do kind of seem to be running its course. Um, and I, I think I'm going to point to an example of this 
of someone I keep making this joke about, which is the esteemed senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, um, who I, I keep saying to people, I wish John Fetterman would stop doing things to make me like him. I don't want to like him, but he keeps doing things to make me like him. I think he actually is a perfectly good representation of what I'm looking at here and what I'm hoping for, which is here. here's a guy who's a Democrat who's of the left and is saying things that I don't necessarily even regard as being politically on the right. I regard them as just being politically commonsensical. Um, I think he is a perfect example of this. I, I think the kind of disasters that we've been seeing in major American cities, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in applying Herb Stein's law to a lot of this, that things that cannot continue will not continue. And I don't think the level of insanity that we have seen at the American border can continue the way that that has been fed into major American cities. I don't think that can continue. I don't think the level of crime that is happening in major American cities can continue. Continue, and even in mid-sized cities, there are problems here in Grand Rapids as well. Um, not nearly as pronounced as Chicago or New York, but they, they certainly are there. And a lot of the stuff that you ha highlighted, Anthony, of the um, kind of ways of thinking about things that people became very preoccupied with over the course of the last four to eight years, that the, the hold that it seems to have on people seems to be lessening, and I think that's a good thing. And if we can have this kind of return to an era of just being a little bit more common sense about the way that we deal with things, uh, I think would be very beneficial. And and I'm hopeful that we have that kind of you – know, we didn't get the return to normalcy that um, the we were supposedly promised about four years ago, and I don't think we're going to get a return to normalcy. I don't, I don't even know when it was ever really normal in America. America isn't a very normal place and it never really has we're just been. not a normal country but some I, I think you both are right in the sense that it feels like we are reaching a fever pitch on a lot of these issues um and maybe it's time for just a generation to pass and that's true in american politics it's true in church politics you're sort of at the end of power for a generation and i think um i think maybe that's where we're starting to feel it and the baton has to pass and the baton isn't being passed willingly. So I think maybe we are at that end. And and hopefully, hopefully 2016 or 2016. Oh my God. Yeah. No, that was four. That was that was PTSD. Yeah, that was speaking. like that was the most Freudian possible moment. And it was like both wrong <laughs> and accurate at the same time. Wrong and correct. I'm like, maybe 2016 will usher in a younger, Con more effective. Confirming my point. Confirming my point then, about it being the eighth yeah. year of 2016. <laughs> it's, it's just continued to go. There's yes. no better way I can put this now than the accidental joke I made. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Anthony. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>